Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. This month, we're off to the zoo to meet some lovelorn laughing thrushes, endangered snails and the Scylla Black of Sumatran tigers. Obviously, they're such amazingly beautiful animals. Everyone pretty much wants to be breeding tigers and we do have to limit the number of recommendations we can give because there simply isn't the space to house all the potential tiger cubs there could be. Plus a sneak preview of this year's Genetic Society JBS Haldane lecture and a gene of the month that likes a tipple. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for November 2017 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Earlier this month, I took a trip to London Zoo. It wasn't purely for fun. I was there to meet some of the team at ZSL London Zoo who are responsible for protecting and conserving species that are critically endangered in the wild. It's a vital part of ZSL's work, but as I discovered when I started my visit in the tropical birdhouse, it's not quite as simple as just sticking some animals together and letting nature take its course. There's quite a lot of genetics to take into account too. Well, I'm Laura Gardner, curator of birds here at ZSL London Zoo, and we're standing in the middle of the Blackburn Pavilion, which is the uh, tropical birdhouse at London. And standing or sitting right in front of us is one of our five blue-crowned laughing thrush. And this is a critically endangered Chinese passerine, endemic to China. And the total numbers of this bird in the wild are fewer than 320, so really critically endangered. And the captive population in zoos across North America, Europe and Asia are collaborating to actually secure an insurance population should anything happen to that remnant population back in China. So we have 269 birds within the zoo population. On a genetic level, how do you manage that population? How do you work out who's who and, uh, and who's allowed to, to breed with who to make sure that that population continues? Well, it's a bit like online dating. It's matchmaking with science thrown in. So we look at the genetics and the demographics of the species in order to manage that species long term. What are the risks of this captive population not being maintained, of becoming inbred? Well, essentially, if the species becomes too inbred, it then won't be a viable breeding population, and ultimately that will disappear, which will, I think, be really, really sad. Um, We don't know how secure the birds are left in the wild. We know where the birds go to to breed every year, and those areas are protected by the Forestry Bureau, but the birds disperse at the end of August every year, and we just don't know where they go. So potentially, they could all colonise over winter in the same areas that area then becomes 
urbanised, developed, we lose that habitat and potentially all of the species upon which that habitat depends and everything will be gone. So this insurance population is vitally important. You said there are five female birds here. Um, From my knowledge of biology, females don't tend to make more birds on their own. Where are the boys? Absolutely. And this is an important part. We've actually had to get quite clever with how we manage our captive populations. And a lot of it is the mean kinship of a population. That is to say how related any one of these individual birds is to the others within the zoo population. And you can get several pairs that are very prolific and well represented. So their lineage is well represented within that population. But if they produce too many chicks and other pairs aren't breeding so successfully, you end up with a glut of birds that are actually closely related. So what this group here represents is a closely related group of female birds. And we just don't have at this point in time suitable unrelated males to pair with them so we've got breeding recommendations to the birds or for the zoos that hold the pairs of birds that have underrepresented lineages and once those birds reproduce we will then hopefully have some males these females will then go and join these males at other zoological collections for captive breeding and that's what makes your population sustainable What is the future for these birds? What's the long-term plan? The long-term plan is a a combination. It's a very collaborative um, response. This is a globally managed population, and there's, I think, 16 species which are currently globally managed. So the idea of the global species management plans are to bring all of the regional populations managed under one umbrella, which makes sure that there's more viable long-term population management. It also includes things like husbandry, welfare, looking at veterinary issues as well, all of which will not only impact upon the captive population within our zoos, but it will also have significant implications for the wild population, things like disease surveillance, managing parasites, all of the things that could impact upon the wild population. You've described a huge amount of human effort that's going on to understand these populations, to work out their genetics, to to keep them going and make them sustainable. But what about human efforts that aren't helping with conservation? Absolutely. I think we're at this point with many of our threatened species because of the the behaviours of of people and um, how we impact upon the environment has a direct consequence for the species that depend upon that environment. So things like land use changes, urbanisation, the building of roads and infrastructure that supports expanding human populations quite often will have a very negative and detrimental impact upon the species that normally will live within that habitat. There are also more direct human behaviours such as illegal wildlife trade. And that's a real focus for ZSL at the moment and many zoological collections are working collaboratively with conservation organisations and other partners out in these areas, particularly across Asia, where you've got the illegal songbird trade uh, or the songbird trade and the illegal wildlife trade, both of which significantly impact upon these Asian songbird populations. It was just like being in the rainforest. That was Laura Gardner and her blue-crowned laughing thrushes. Once I'd escaped from the delightfully relaxing bird pavilion, I went off to the other side of London Zoo in search of larger prey, or rather, predators. 
My name's Jo Cook. I'm a conservation breeding specialist for Zoological Society of London. And we're currently in our Sumatran tiger habitat at London Zoo. And that is one of the programmes that I manage for the European region. So you're basically the uh, Scylla Black of tigers? Uh, that's not been said before, but yes, I guess I am. Yeah. <laughs> We're here in the tiger enclosure, your lovely tiger territory here. We can see a, a tiger up there just relaxing. Presumably that tiger is in your breeding programme. That's right, yeah. We've got a pair of adult tigers here, JJ and Malati, and this is their second litter that they've had as part of the breeding programme. And in a few months' time, the youngsters will be going off to other zoos to continue the programme and make sure that their genes are captured for the future. Unfortunately, at this point, the tiger enclosure was overrun by an invasive species, noisy small children, so Joe and I headed up to her office to chat about tiger dating in more detail and what population management actually means for a species like the Sumatran tiger. So for us, it's maintaining a captive population that is uh, genetically and behaviourally diverse so that we can support their wild um, counterparts. And that can be in terms of raising awareness and funds for in-situ conservation, but also maintaining a lifeboat population, if you like, should reintroduction be necessary in the future. So if all the wild population is completely wiped out, you're like, hang on, we've got some in the zoo, let's try and put them back. Obviously, we hope that will never happen. But yes, that is one of the reasons for maintaining captive populations. And with something like the Sumatran tigers that are so endangered that there's so few of them left, how do you go about managing that population, working out how to keep them genetically diverse and keep that population sustainable? Um, It can be quite difficult. The one thing we rely on is actually knowing how each tiger is related to every other tiger within the population because we do want to maximise that genetic diversity. So it's very important that we have good, clean data and we know how all the tigers are related. And by analysing that information, we can then decide which tigers should be breeding together and uh, which pairings we need to create to make that happen. So how do you work out the genetics of an individual tiger? Do you need to take a DNA sample? How do you do that, apart from very, very carefully? (laughs) For some populations, that definitely is needed. But for the tigers, we're very lucky in that there's been a very um, long-running historical stud book. And we can actually trace each one of our captive tigers right back to its wild founders. So we can do it through pedigree analysis rather than DNA analysis. What do you mean by a stud book? What is that? It's essentially a database which contains all the information of every tiger that's been born within the captive population. Um, And that does include recording data on animals, obviously, that have died, but also those that were stillborn, because that information is necessary for demographic analysis. So every time an animal is born, we enter it into its stud book, along with its parents and where it was born, etc. And throughout its life, we track its movements between different zoos, and obviously the last record will be its death. What happens when another zoo, you know, wants you to play Scylla Black and says, oh, we've got this tiger, have you got, you know, how do, we, how do you set up a tiger date? It is very difficult because obviously the other thing about tigers is they're such amazingly beautiful animals and tiger cubs bring in a lot of revenue for zoos. Everyone pretty much wants to be breeding tigers and we do have to limit um, the number of recommendations we can give because there simply isn't the space to house all the potential tiger cubs there could be. So when a zoo does approach us, we have to see whether they have important animals um, and whether they should be given priority for breeding. And if not, we have to try and shift things around, if you like, and move tigers to the right places to meet up with the right mates. It is very complicated and it's been likened to moving house a thousand times over with all the added stress. But yeah, we get there. And what happens if you go through all this process 
and the tigers kind of don't hit it off or they don't make cubs together. It can be highly frustrating when that happens and occasionally there are just incidences where two animals just aren't compatible. Um, Or you may find that a pair isn't compatible in one place, but if you move them to a different zoo, actually, for some reason, they're quite happy together. So there's lots of other variables that affect the success, and we just have to deal with those as they happen. And focusing on the, the wonderful tigers that you have here, tell me a bit about them and their breeding history. You've had quite a lot of luck with them, haven't you? Yeah, um, we have a breeding pair. So the female is Malati and the male is JJ. And JJ came to us from Akron in the United States and Malati from Perth in Australia. And that was part of the global uh, programme that we also manage here at ZSL. Um, They currently have two cubs with them, and their previous litter, they had three cubs, but those animals have already grown up and gone to their new homes to continue the programme. So the cubs that have already headed out into the world, are they breeding yet? Have Have they got grandchildren out there? Not just yet. They're still a little bit young for that, but maybe in the next two or three years, then yes, there will be grandchildren from the London Zoo pair, which would be great. And when JJ and Malati did successfully raise their their first cubs, how did you feel? Did you feel a bit sort of maternal or grandmotherly? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The majority of my time is spent in front of a computer. So to be actually able to go down to our enclosure and see the cubs that have been produced as part of a recommendation, it it does bring it home to you and you think, yeah, that's a good day. (laughs) Given how successful Malati and JJ have been with having cubs, are there plans for having more? I mean, if if they're so good at it, why don't you have loads and loads and loads of cubs from them? That would be lovely, but unfortunately we don't want to um, have an influx of their genes within the population. So it's actually unlikely that they will have another breeding recommendation, certainly in the near future, and we might need to look at changing the pair we have here. Oh no, you're going to split them up? Possibly, but we will see, yes. (laughs) Joe Cook, the Scylla Black of Sumatran Tigers at ZSL. When we think about conserving wildlife, you probably think of the big stuff. Pandas, tigers, elephants and other endangered mammals. But according to Dave Clark, head of invertebrates at ZSL London Zoo, the truly endangered animals are at the other end of the scale. We're in our Polynesian tree snail breeding room at the moment, so we're surrounded by tanks with loads of little snails in them. They're one of our rarest animals that we keep here and one of the rarest in the world. When you think of a zoo, you probably think of the big things like tigers and elephants. It seems strange to me that these small snails are incredibly rare. What is their story? Well, there's probably far more invertebrate animals that are rare than the big animals, because the big animals are easier to see. Uh, There's a lot of invertebrates which are going extinct all the time because of loss of habitat, many that haven't even been described yet. The other thing about that is that the invertebrates are fundamental to ecosystems, so can be as important, if not more important, in recycling and pollination and things like that. So they have a great importance, which is much greater than their size. So these little guys here uh, feed on decaying plant material, which is an important job in ecosystems. But they're just as bit as worthy of conservation as a big, beautiful elephant. These are Polynesian snails. What was their journey from Polynesia to here? And, uh, you know, why have you got them? Well, they were studied actually over 100 years ago by someone called Crampton, who was looking at the speciation of the snails. You get different types of snails in different valleys on each individual island throughout the South Pacific. And uh, that work was picked up in the 1980s, 90s by a group of professors. They realised that at that time the animals were also becoming extinct in the wild. And this was a, a, a slightly complicated story of biological control gone wrong because the giant African land snail was introduced to Polynesia as a potential food crop. They became a pest 
And what they did to try and control their numbers was introduce a predatory snail from America called the rosy wolf snail. But the rosy wolf snail liked bite-sized parchula snails and not great big giant land snails and set about the extinction of them on the islands. And uh, in, on one island, most of the species became extinct within just 10 years. Wow. And how did you manage to salvage these snails and bring them here? And what have you been doing with them? Because people were studying them, they had quite a few in captivity. We then uh, got involved and started mounting rescue expeditions for the ones that were going extinct in the wild. Some we were lucky with, some we were too late. Uh, In some cases, the animals went down to tiny numbers. There's a a species over there called Parchula tohiviana, and they went down to only three individuals at one time. But we have the opportunity to get them going in captivity. But that species is uh, over 2,000 now, and we have been able to release some back to the wild. That species, if it went down to three individuals and now you've grown it back up to 2,000 and you're putting them back into the wild, surely that is now quite an inbred population. How have you been studying them at a genetic level to make sure that they're kind of okay? What probably happened with these snails was that they had a relatively small gene pool anyway because they popped up on these Pacific islands as they were coming up volcanic activity from the ground. So they're less than a million or two years old in many cases. They probably arrived just on a bird's foot or a log or something like that. So it would have been a small genetic base anyway. So loss of diversity in these may not be that significant and there is a perfect example there. Others, we do try to maintain as much diversity as possible. So where we've been able to, we've collected larger numbers from the wild and we've tried to manage them on a group basis. So unlike individuals where you might know who Derek the gorilla is, uh, with the parchulas, we have them in tanks and you can see these are populations of snails, usually between maybe 20 and 100 snails. And they are our, our sort of base level group and we might then outcross them to other groups of the same species but in most cases we keep them as direct lines and they do very well. So you're effectively treating each tank of snails as kind of one thing, one genetic organism? That's right. We've had a stud book for snails for uh, nearly 20 years now. And uh, we keep records of all the different species, how many each year, who's keeping them, because it's a worldwide programme. There are 15 institutions worldwide that keep them. And uh, we we help maintain the numbers here at uh, London Zoo. Now, I see quite a lot of these tanks are empty, and you mentioned you've been reintroducing these snails back to the wild. Presumably, they've gone back where they came from. What did you do with them? That's right. Well, uh, a little earlier this year, we did some reintroductions to the wild. We're doing it for a few years now. And um, 1,300 of the snails in this room went out to the wild alongside animals from Edinburgh Zoo and uh, a few other zoos in the UK. That's a global programme in trying to reintroduce the species back into the wild. So that's obviously the main aim of any conservation breeding programme. And... It's not always easy to get to that point, but we have done so after what's over 30 years of working with these snails in captivity. It's great to be actually putting them back in the wild where they belong. But what about the predator that was introduced? Is it now safer for them to be there, or are we just going to see them being wiped out again by these predatory snails? Well, it's still a complicated dynamic in the wild. So the predator snail is still there, but what happened, which happens with a lot of biological controls, is there was a kind of boom and bust, where when they first got to the island, they went, yippee, loads Woo-hoo! of food, and, uh, and spread across the island within 10 years. But now that their populations have dropped right back, 
there's a good chance of them of our partridge now surviving even with some predation. So that's what we're looking at. It, it gets more and more complicated. Life is never easy. There's a little flatworm which has been introduced as well, uh, which can predate the snails. But what we've got is ongoing situation, working with the Tatian government, people on the ground studying the snails, looking how well they're doing. And we also know that animals that were released a year or two ago are still persisting in the wild. So everything's looking good. That was Dave Clark introducing me to his Polynesian parchula snails. All of the species I met in the zoo, the blue-crowned laughing thrushes, the Sumatran tigers and those parchula snails, are small groups on the brink of extinction. That poses some significant genetic problems for conservationists, as I discovered when I called up John Ewan, ZSL's expert on saving small populations. Understanding the genetics of the population of the species is is critical when you're planning for recovery. Uh, However, I think I, what I always do and what I always encourage others to do if I'm working with different groups on, on their own conservation problems is take a step back and try and understand first what it is they're trying to achieve. So, uh, in most cases, when we're, we're looking at small populations of threatened species, you know, we're worried that they're facing uh, an extinction event, and so we're trying to recover them. So we've got this this core biological objective, which is driving our management choices. Then we can start thinking about how genetics plays a role in that recovery. So it depends what you want. Um, for me, it's about recovering populations and recovering a species. And then I start considering how genetics plays a role in that. When you do get to the genetic part of it, what sort of things are you thinking about? And how do you sort of measure the genetics of a small population? <laughs> uh, so I immediately get worried if I'm, I'm faced with a situation where we've got a small and isolated population, uh, because that's exactly the situation which can get you into trouble from a genetic perspective. So in, in those types of scenarios, the genetics of those populations will primarily be driven by two processes. One, genetic drift, so loss of genetic diversity. Then a second problem around inbreeding, so breeding between relatives. And both of those things uh, will change the genetic constitution of that population. And when that happens, you can run into problems, okay? So the, the two main problems that happen will be the risk of inbreeding depression uh, and also uh, the lack of ability for these populations to adapt in the future. What do you mean by inbreeding depression? Presumably they're not just sitting around going, oh, I'm so depressed, all I've got are my cousins left. (laughs) No, when we start talking about inbreeding depression, we're starting to link the the genetic effects on fitness. By fitness, I'm starting to look at those demographic parameters which are important for a population to persist. So we'll have things like um, impacts on reproduction, impacts on survival, uh, so susceptibility to diseases and, and other stresses from the environment on on that species. Is there any point when you're looking at a population that genetically speaking they are just gone, they're too far gone, there's no way you can get them back? No, I I don't believe that at all. I think that it adds a, a, a certain a separate challenge that we then have to deal with. So then we start talking uh, in, in my world about recovery and how we might want to try and manage recovery linking in with genetics then we want to try and recover some of the genetic diversity so there'll be there are options and how you might go about doing that and it really depends again on what your overarching objectives are to the management of that of that population 
you know, at the most basic level, we know that diversity arises because of mutation and uh, that this process requires large population sizes. So in, in any case, I would be trying to grow my threatened population to as big a population size as possible and as quickly as possible so I can uh, remove any further loss of diversity through this random process of drift and I can create a situation where more diversity can arise through mutation. So you're basically trying to grow some weird mutants to boost your population? Well, not not trying to, to purposely grow something like a weird mutant. This is just this is what uh, natural populations do. This is how genetic diversity arises. So we're just trying to put that population back in a place where nature can do its work. What are your hopes for conservation in the future? What really needs to happen to make a difference and to save these species that do seem to be going extinct at an incredible rate? For me, I'm I'm actually much more of an optimist than a pessimist, and I think that the tools that we're using currently to recover threatened species, they they can work. Uh, We need much more investment in them, and genetics certainly is an important component of that and informs them. And so uh, with this increasing technology that we have uh, and with dedicated people, we can bring species back from the brink of extinction. It works, and there's evidence out there that it works, so we just need to do more of it. John Ewan from ZSL. And a huge thank you to Holly Bestley from the ZSL comms team for helping to set up my trip to London Zoo and also for letting me go and look at the penguins on my way out. This is the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Katani. Coming up later, our gene of the month is hitting the pub early. But first... Every year, the Genetic Society awards a number of prizes to outstanding researchers. The JBS Haldane Prize recognises an individual for outstanding ability to communicate topical subjects in genetics research to an interested lay audience. And this year's winner is Professor Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. He'll give his prize lecture on the 21st of November in the hallowed Red Velvet Lecture Theatre of the Royal Institution in central London. It's open to the public and tickets are on sale now. I caught up with Enrico ahead of his talk and asked him why Haldane, a brilliant evolutionary biologist and geneticist, is such a great icon for science communication. Uh, Haldane was a fantastic uh, scientist and communicator. I mean, he had great ideas about the theory of genetics and how you might develop that theory, and also an appreciation of experiments. Uh, But he also communicated to a very broad audience. He wrote several popular science books, wrote articles about science, and I think he was just generally fascinated by the challenge of how you convey complicated ideas to a broad audience. But why do you think it's important to actually communicate genetics, communicate science to the public? You know, it's kind of, it's, it's hard stuff. Why do people need to know about this? Science is just one of the most amazing things that we, we're able to appreciate. And it's part of our world. It's part of how the world works. It's part of the fascination with how things are. And I think uh, it's, it's just our duty, in a way, to, to try and share what we've discovered about, the, about that world. So in terms of your own work, what is your passion? What's your genetic interest? One is to do with the development of shapes and forms. I mean, how is it that a group of cells a small group of cells in an embryo or in, a, in the bud of a flower can turn themselves 
on their own into amazing structures, not just humans, but, but plants, flowers with amazing shapes, leaves with all sorts of different contortions. How does that happen? Because nobody's telling the plant how to do that. The plant has to do that somehow on its own. So when you put a seed into the garden and that turns itself into a daisy or a, a rose, how does that work? Um, the other thing is how does is the historical question. How did that variety of forms arise? How did it evolve? What were the factors, the forces and evolution that led to this diversity of different shapes and forms and colours that we see when we look out in our garden? So both of those aspects fascinate me, both the development of structures and how they've evolved over time. And you'll be doing your JBS Haldane lecture. What will you be talking about? Give me a little run through, a sneak peek of what people can expect. So I'll begin by really uh, asking the audience to, to imagine they're a Martian landing on Earth and trying to make sense of the amazing things that humans have made. So suppose you went around and you'd see things like cars. And one of the first things you might think about is how humans have made things that seem to be tailored to their environment. So cars have wheels so they can go efficiently on roads. Uh, boats have hulls so they can float in the in the water. Snowmobiles have skis to steer them. So everything seems to be adapted to its environment. But then if you look a bit more closely, what you see is actually there's some, lots of things that humans make that aren't, strictly speaking, related to adaptations. For example, some countries you find people drive on the left. In another country, somebody the people drive on the right. That's not to do with adaptation to local conditions. There's something else going on there. So what's that about? That there's some historical process that's somehow creating boundaries and differences between these different countries. And in the same way, what I want to try and convey in my talk is how when in a sense, we're Martians when we're trying to understand how biology works. We're trying to make sense of all these different biological forms that we find, plants or animals or microbes. And what I want to talk about is how we're discovering all these processes, really, uh, in a way that we'd never appreciated before, the advances we've made in being able to study genes. Uh, it's now possible to sequence genomes, entire genomes, uh, very quickly, and that's revolutionising the way we look at organisms and it's showing us this historical component that we only had a sort of um, a hint of previously and uh, it's now being revealed for the first time. If JBS Haldane was alive today and he could see the genetic revolution, all the information we have, what do you think he would say? What would, what would be really blowing his mind today? I think what would blow his mind is the fusion that's happened between people who study gene functions and people who study uh, populations. Because one of Haldane's great contributions was the idea that uh, variation, genetic variation, should be studied not just in terms of small families, but whole populations, um, thinking about the frequencies or the uh, rates at which mutations happen in the population as a whole. And because we can now sequence genomes um, discover their structure across lots of different individuals. First of all, he'd be amazed that that's possible at all to be able to sequence an entire genome and understand the genetic code. But also I think he would be struck by the fact that we can now look at populations in a totally new way. We can look at variation uh, across a whole population of individuals and appreciate 
how that variation is behaving. In the work that you do studying particularly plants, are there any that you really think, wow, look at them, how on earth did they get like that? I suppose the sort of scientific love of my life are snapdragons. About 100 years ago, snapdragons were actually the most, the best understood plant uh, in terms of its genes than any other plant. They fell out of fashion for a while, uh, largely because you can't eat snapdragons. I mean, they're not very tasty <laughs> things to eat, but they were very good for studying genes. And so, so really, over the last 30-odd years, I've worked consistently on these plants, trying to understand how their patterns and forms uh, generated, and they've been uh, remarkably sort of fruitful. Do you, do you grow them in your own garden? Yes, uh, we have some in our garden, and I always look at them in a slightly different way, perhaps, than I would look at all the other flowers in the garden. I sort of, they're my friends. I know them very well. I know the variations that I see instantly. I can tell, oh, yes, that's that gene that's segregating or varying between one snapdragon and another. So, yes, they're like familiar friends that live with me. Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. And you can buy tickets now for his award lecture on Tuesday the 21st of November, starting at 7pm in the Royal Institution. Simply head to the podcast page at nakedscientist.com slash genetics and click on this interview to get the link, or search online for The Snapdragon's Tale. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and this time it's Happy Hour. If you're anything like me, the only way to get through the dark nights of winter not to mention the endless torrent of terrible global news, is to get drunk. But the difference between passing out after a single shot or only getting blotto after a whole bottle might be in your genes, at least if you're a fruit fly. The happy hour gene was discovered in 2009 by researchers who took a bunch of fruit flies, plied them with alcohol, then looked for mutations that meant the flies stayed standing long after their regular comrades had keeled over drunk. These hardened insect boozers turned out to have a mutation in a gene involved in sending signals inside cells, making a type of enzyme known as a kinase. The happy hour gene normally works as part of the EGFR signalling pathway, which is involved in a huge range of fundamental biological processes, including telling cells when to divide. Unsurprisingly, faults in EGFR signalling are linked to cancer, But in the case of alcohol consumption, happy hour seems to be playing a role in the part of the fly brain that responds to the chemical dopamine, which helps to control pleasure and reward. Intriguingly, when the researchers gave normal flies a cancer drug that blocked EGFR signalling, they got knocked out by alcohol a lot faster than those who hadn't taken the treatment. The same effect worked in mice and rats, eventually putting them off booze altogether, suggesting that this could potentially be a way to treat alcoholism in humans by making the unpleasant effects of alcohol kick in quicker. Happy Hour isn't the only fruit fly gene associated with alcohol metabolism. The same lab also discovered cheap date. Flies with a mutation in this gene are super sensitive to alcohol, the opposite to Happy Hour. The team also found a gene they called hangover, which helps fruit flies become tolerant to alcohol over time. It's unknown whether flies with a mutation in their hangover gene can be found slumped in front of the TV on a Sunday morning, muttering, please just be quiet and bring me a bacon sandwich. That's all for now. I'll be back next month with all the latest news from the world of genetics, including reports from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. 
Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes.